Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. 806 on this Valentine's Day. It's February 14th. 12 degrees currently here in Old Town Park City with a bit of blue sky peeking out. On the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center, meteorologist Thomas Geeboy. Good morning. Morning, Leslie. Happy Valentine's Day for this morning. It's definitely chilly out there. We're getting a little bit of a break in the action. We saw a batch of snow move through uh, northern Utah during the overnight hours. And some of our resorts picked up at least a couple of inches of snow. Meanwhile, the Cottonwoods picked up a few inches to a handful. As we go through today, we'll likely see that snow chance pick up a little bit more once we get into the afternoon. So after a little bit of a break, we'll see that snow chance jump back up to 70%. At this point, though, the bulk of what we're going to see across the entire state will be in the central and southern half of the state. But I'm still optimistic that we could still at least see some more snow up north. But today going to be a chilly day in Park City, only topping out at 20 degrees. Also going to be a bit blustery as well with winds out of the north. And with those strong winds, we could see wind chill values stay in the teens, single digits, and maybe even below zero during the course of the day. So bundle up if you're going to be heading out and about for this Valentine's Day. As we go into tonight, the chance for snow will gradually begin to go down. It won't go away completely. We'll still hold on to about a one in three chance in Park City with the overnight low dropping to five degrees. And then for our Wednesday, about a 20% chance of snow during the first half of the day. But high pressure will gradually build its way in. So that chance will steadily go down from tonight through tomorrow morning then eventually coming to an end tomorrow afternoon into tomorrow night. The daytime high for our Wednesday, a daytime high climbing to 21 degrees. Those winds will continue out of the north. So those wind chill values still likely going to be brutal from today, tonight, and through tomorrow before things start to calm down a little bit more. But with calm conditions and mostly clear skies on our Wednesday night, we'll see that overnight low drop to 2 degrees. So very cold temperatures in store through the middle of the week. Temperatures will begin to moderate, though, thanks to that high pressure building in for the second half of the work week. We get mostly sunny to partly cloudy skies both Thursday and Friday. We'll go from the upper 20s on Thursday to the upper 30s by Friday. Then on Saturday and Sunday, we'll introduce a slight chance of snow outside of that. I think we'll see mostly sunny to partly cloudy skies. And based on the forecast model trends, it looks like that's a very slight chance, maybe 10% at the most at this particular juncture. Highs will continue in the mid to upper 30s. Overnight lows will rebound back into the upper teens, around 20 degrees through this upcoming weekend. But as we look, at, as we look ahead into early next week, forecast model becoming more and more optimistic that next week has the potential to be quite active with snow liking for Washington's birthday and possibly through the middle of next week. So we'll fine tune that forecast as we get a little bit closer, Leslie. Okay. Thanks, Thomas. You're welcome. And taking a look in the backcountry on the phone with us from the Utah Avalanche Forecast Center, we have Nikki. Good morning. Good morning. So we picked up a little bit of snow overnight. What that means for the surface conditions is that there's going to be a little bit of dust on crust on the solar aspects. There was a firm sun crust over the last few days. And on the non-solar aspects, on the northerly facing uh, terrain, there was a bit of a wind board. Um, the good news is that there was some soft settled powder that still existed in the sheltered terrain. So the soft snow is just gonna fall on top of that. Yesterday, there was one wet loose avalanche reported in the backcountry. That was in the Ant Knolls area of the Wasatch back. Wet loose isn't necessarily a concern for today with the colder temperatures. The main thing that we're going to want to think about today is just wind drifted snow. So there's been a huge bump in overnight winds, gusts up to 80 miles per hour near wooden, Hidden Peak. Plus there's been a few inches of new snow that may have formed shallow soft slabs of wind drifted snow at all upper elevations. With the winds slated to remain elevated throughout the day, these shallow soft slabs will only continue to grow. So you're going to want to look for any slopes assigned to wind drifted snow and avoid that. So well, if you're headed to the high country or any extreme peaks today, these wind slabs may be small, but they can 
pose a major threat if they knock you off your feet and carry you through consequential terrain. So the avalanche danger is generally low, but areas of moderate avalanche danger exist at all upper elevations where sensitive slabs of wind drifted snow will continue to form today. Okay, Nikki, thank you. Well, taking a look at the local resorts, we've got uh, five new inches reported at Park City Mountain with 40 lifts to turn, 334 runs, 139 of those groomed, including Dynamite and Sidewinder. And at Deer Valley, 20 lifts, 103 runs with 59 of those groomed, including Fairview and Nabob. They're reporting two inches of new snow. We've got 20 kilometers of track groomed at the White Pine Touring Center. Lou telling us that uh, they may hold off on the farm a little bit later, uh, but the three, the five, and the 3K Armstrong loop all ready to go. And uh, let's see, in the uh, Snyderville Basin, Chris telling us that they're grooming everything today except for the Basin 5K. In Round Valley, all of Round Valley will get groomed except for the Land of Oz, uh, Hanson's and the US 40 side of Barrel Roll and out at the Wasatch Trail, the Jordan Roll Ridge area, they've got 10 miles of single track groomed. Well, stay tuned. Coming up on the local news hour this morning, I'll be checking in with the executive director of the Alfangan Ski Museum, Connie Nelson, along with Tom Kelly. They'll have a preview of the opening of a new exhibit at the museum. It's 2022 Beijing Hometown Heroes. Then Sean Higgins, political reporter with KUER, will have this week's legislative update. And finally, Rob Harder, executive director of the Christian Center of Park City, with an update on some of the events and services that the organization is offering. Well, the Park City School District offers preschool for three and four years old until work is completed at the district's elementary schools for more preschool space. Parents need to enter a lottery for child care spots, and that lottery is now open. The Park City School District began offering preschool 12 years ago. According to Park City Education Foundation President and CEO Abby McNulty, the expense is worth it because early education has one of the highest rates of return for the school district. Base, every dollar invested in preschool provides thirteen dollars um, in returns to our community and addresses the education gap before kindergarten it reduces expensive interventions in early elementary school it increases high school graduation rates increases years of college completed and also increases lifetime earned income so the community and the school district many years ago decided it was a high priority the Education Foundation helps fund the district's preschool costs by contributing anywhere between $100,000 and $250,000 a year. Currently, preschool only has 200 seats available, but some 600 kids want to attend. In order to meet the demand, McNulty says that the school district holds a lottery every year. And the Park City School District is hosting that lottery right now until February 24th. So any interested families in the preschool program um, at ages three and four, and again, it's at every single elementary school in our community, um, should register. Lottery is open until February 24th at pcschools.us. Part of the $129 million in bonds that the school district has taken out will go to expand elementary schools to add more preschool space. So there should be enough seats for every child in this community who wants to be part of the Park City School District preschool program, which is a really high quality, fun, engaging, loving and nurturing environment for kids. Currently, expansion work is happening at Jeremy Ranch and McPollin Elementary Schools. These two schools will also house before and after school programs, which is why they're being done first. Once complete, the district will expand Trailside and Parley's Park Elementary Schools for even more preschool space. 
Park City Education Foundation is hosting a virtual visit on the preschool program on Thursday from 1.30 to 2 p.m. McNulty says it's an opportunity to see how the foundation's investments in preschool are working and how they make a difference in schools every day. A link to register for the virtual visit is in the web version of this story at kpcw.org. Well, the Alvangian Ski Museum, located at the Utah Olympic Park, is opening a new exhibit. And in the studio with details, I have the museum's executive director, Connie Nelson, along with uh, former chairman of the board, Tom Kelly. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. Good, morning. Good to be here. Yeah, Connie, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about the exhibit? Great. Yeah, um, we've been uh, hosting the uh, Hometown Hero since uh, 2006 and uh, was actually the brainchild of uh, Tom Kelly sitting next to me looking at uh, all the legacy facilities that we have, Utah Olympic Park, Utah Olympic Oval, and Soldier Hollow and all of the resorts we have here and a lot of the kids out there training every day and then becoming um, competitive and going on to from the legacy facilities onto the game. So uh, this, we're now we're featuring the 2022 Beijing hometown heroes. Always hard to choose who's going in, um, but the criteria are they, you know, grew up locally and uh, trained on the facilities and participated in the Olympics. They didn't necessarily need to win anything, but um, yeah, we're having the unveiling of this exhibit uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, the 15th of February at 11.30. With, uh, uh, we're having the small presentation at 12 noon, and it is free, and we'd love to have people come. We, it will be catered by Done to Your Taste, and uh, we'd just like to feature our new exhibit and also talk about uh, another new exhibit that we're having, um, we're putting together for the next couple of years. But uh, always excited to celebrate our athletes here, and uh Tom's going to just talk a bit about each of them. Yeah, Thanks, real Tom. quick, do people need to RSVP? It would be good um, to see Nelson at uolf.org, um, or you can just come. We, we have plenty of food and plenty of room for everybody. Right now we have about 50 people coming, but we'd really like the community to come out um, and celebrate our local athletes that were in the Beijing Olympics if they worked hard to get there. Okay, so Tom, everybody who on the U.S. ski team that uh, participated in the Olympics is featured then at the exhibit? Or? No, we have a select group that's being featured. And just to kind of set the stage on that, I think, Connie, this is the third group now that we've honored with the Hometown Heroes exhibit. Fourth, yeah. For, fourth yeah. now. So it's, it's just a cool exhibit to kind of remind everybody about the great culture of sport that we have here in Utah. And what I particularly like about the, the group of selectees this year is that it really is a blend, just as we are in sport here in Park City. We have a couple of athletes who pretty much grew up almost their entire life here in Park City. And we have a number who have made Park City their home because of the great training facilities. So just to kind of touch base on some of them, I want to start with Colby Stevenson. He moved here when he was really a little boy and got involved in the program at the Park City ski team. And he is on a tear right now. Won a silver medal at the Olympics last year, but he picked up slopestyle gold at the X Games. And then he went out this past week and won uh, the King of Corbett's uh, competition up in Jackson, which is a really prestigious kind of cult honor to uh, be the best skier down Corbett's Couloir. So great to honor him. Uh, Danielle Olmsted is a, an athlete who moved here for the National Ability Center program. Uh, she has seven Paralympic and World Championship medals uh, with she and husband Rob. She is a blind skier and just a wonderful member of our community. But again, she made Park City home because of the great sport programs that we have here. And that's kind of the case too with uh, the three skiers, uh, three freestyle aerial 
medalist who won the gold medal in the debut of the team event at Beijing a year ago. Uh, Ashley Caldwell is uh, one who actually came here the longest time ago. She's been here for over a decade, moving from her home in Virginia because of the facilities here. And that also attracted Chris Lillis from um, uh, from New York State and and. Uh, uh, Justin Schoenfeld from uh, Indiana. And they've all come here because of the Utah Olympic Park facilities and the ability to train and have made Park City their home. And then finally, we're branching out from uh, the ski and snowboard world a little bit this year to recognize Casey Dawson, a speed skater, Olympic medalist. Casey is a total homegrown Park City product, uh, came up through the Get Out and Play program with Youth Sports Alliance. Uh, he was the one, and folks in town will remember the agony that he went through trying to test negative for COVID, finally was allowed to fly to Beijing midway through the games, lost his bags and everything, but got everything back together and went out with his teammates and won a medal uh, in, a, in a team event. So uh, great to honor all of these uh, athletes who, who all call Park City their home. Yeah. So what, what will people see at the exhibit? They'll see some artifacts. We have four um, different exhibits, um, artifacts from each of those um, areas, Colby, Casey, Danielle, and then we have uh, one case for Justin, Chris, and Ashley. And we've also um, secured some footage from each of their Olympic runs. So, you know, we have um, close to 500,000 visitors a year going through our museum. And as I watch people over the last few months looking at this exhibit, they really are amazed when they see the slope style. They see the big air they see that these athletes performing and that and that combines with looking at their artifacts so it's a nice combo so what are you talking about like skis and skates and i mean what what kind of artifacts you're talking about oh their outfits the speed skating suit um the skates uh yeah uh any of the skis but mostly their outfits and it's always striking each each time we have an olympic um, a new Oli winter olympic to see what the outfits look like and of course we all want to see that and what strikes me when i first saw the exhibit completed was the red white and blue which i've never seen before it was that was that was the color screen which i didn't really notice on tv so much but when you actually see all of the outfits for each of the sports and the athletes lined up in in the four it's red white and blue so come and check it out all right so how does, how long does it stay on a Exhibit four. Till the next Olympics. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're replacing then the one that's currently, that was current. Pyeongchang is gone. Okay. <laughs> Those athletes have come and picked up their artifacts and now we've moved on. Daniela Umstead has been featured uh, more than once. Um, she's been in four Olympics, Paralympics. So we're, yeah, we, we, and Ted Ligeti was in a couple that, you know, if they keep producing, we'll keep putting their new outfits in. Okay. You mentioned you get a hundred, you get a 500,000 visitors through the museum every year. What, what's the busy season? I mean, is it winter, is it summer, or is it about split? That is such an interesting question. Would you believe March is our second busiest month? July being our busiest. Uh, a lot of people bring their families up in the summer. So of course, July, they come and watch the athletes in the pool. They go out and try the activities. They see you know, how it's all done um, in the museum because they're free. But March is typically the, um, the United States um, has their spring breaks. And so we'll we'll see one week, there'll be Texas, Florida, and California coming through. And another week, it'll be Arizona, Colorado. Um, people, we have 78% of our population that comes through the museum are from out of Summit County. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a real testament to the advertising and to the draw that Park City and also the Utah Olympic Park has for visitors to come and check out that 
big green thing on the side of the hill. <laughs> That's an attractive one. Of course, the Park City Chamber Bureau at the base is a great um, marketing tool for us to get people up the hill. Yeah. If I could add just a little bit to that, you know, one of the things that's always fascinated me about this museum is that high volume of traffic. Uh, but, but this is... In, in my opinion, the best ski museum in the world. And I've seen quite a few. No one gets the kind of traffic. And there, there's a new renovation. If you haven't been out there, if you're a local or a visitor, if you haven't been out there in a few years, come on out and check it out. There's a lot more beyond the Hometown Heroes exhibit with the uh, about a million dollar renovation that's taken place over the last couple of years. And what I've always loved about this museum is how the displays are always changing, always being updated and upgraded. So uh, again, if you haven't been out there in a year or two, come on out because there's a lot of new things to see. Yeah. Um, I think just to walk through the museum, it's free, but you do have some tours that you would charge for and some kind of interactive things that people could pay for as well. 100%. Yeah, it's free to go through the Alfing and Ski Museum and the Eccles 2002 Olympic Museum on the second floor. We do have a mountain sports simulator and a simulated ski jump uh, that is $6 per person for that activity. Uh, but that's just if you, you choose to do that. There's 45 interactive exhibits that aren't charged. And the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation has a tour for outside the museum um, that goes outside. So it's a great synergy between Utah Olympic Park and uh, the Alfing and Ski Museum. We're seen as one, and that's why we get so many visitors. Okay. Um, I was going to ask, uh, I noticed on the website that you have nominations for the class of the 2023 Intermountain Ski Hall of Fame open. What do, what do people need to do if they're got somebody to nominate well that's on our website yeah march 1st is the deadline so it's sneaking up quick uh tom is just filling one in i'm gonna let him tell him exactly how's that going <laughs> yeah i'm a big hall of fame guy whether it's uh utah or the national one i'm involved with colorado as well uh putting together a nomination for ted lady uh our real hometown hero uh uh, who is, has been a, a great one for us to follow and now is a really active member of our community uh, living here in, in town. So that's one that's going to go in. There's a bunch of others. So if anybody does know someone you want to nominate, it's uh, from the Intermountain West, uh, make sure to get that in by March 1st because I know that they're really tough on their deadlines. Yeah, and if you have any questions, don't hesitate to call Connie Nelson at uh, 435 658 4240. The nomination form is on our website, ingenmuseum.org. So yeah, if you're thinking of someone, we, we're actually really um, taking over a lot of the promotion of the nomination. We do work with University of Utah, J. Willard Library, Ski and Snow Sports, Ski Archives. That's a mouthful. They just changed their name to all that. But, but yeah, we, they do the one and two-dimensional artifacts um, in preservation, and we do the three-dimensional. So we would love to have uh, more nominations, and we'll be promoting that. So if you don't do it this year, I can sh really help for 2024. Sure. So who's eligible to be... You know, I mean, nomination. You have to be involved in the ski and yeah. snowboard industry or something? Or? Yes, ski and snow sport. And it can be a ski pioneer. It can be somebody who um, you know, invented the, the ski brake or the, um, the quick-release binding, um, who's uh, been a big um, promoter of, of the actual ski resorts. We have Nick Badami, um, who's been inducted. Um, athletes, obviously, the Ted Ligeties and the Eric Slopies and Peekaboo Streets are in there. And just giving back to the community in terms of snow sports, Barbara Yamada, it's been um, inducted Jim Gaddis, Alan Ingen, I mean, Stein Erickson, all the big names. You walk down the Hall of Fame, which is going to be our next um, 
our next renovation. We're running out. We, this is the last year. We're running out of room. So we're going to renovate the whole entrance to the museum and the Hall of Fame, put in a, a new hall, but also an interactive component. People like to read and see the photos actually on the wall. So yeah. Uh, so what pays for that renovation? Uh, grants and uh, folks giving us uh, membership and coming in and uh, paying for the mountain sports simulator. So, but mostly grants. Yeah, we have a great community. And in terms of grants, the um, the uh, hometown heroes exhibit was the Park City Community Foundation, Park City Sunrise Rotary, Summit County Rap Tax Grant, and the Utah Olymp- the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation. So, we really rely on uh, folks supporting us, and we have a great community here in Park City that we really rely on, and they've been great. So. That'll be one of them. So will that renovation mean that you close at all this this spring or summer? No, I still ha- I have to go out and get three hundred eighty-eight thousand dollars, Leslie. <laughs> so I got to hunt and gather first. So I'm uh, uh, my goal is two years. So and we just closed the entrance. That what our exhibit design folks do is they create the exhibit offsite. We already have the concept plans. They build it, and then when they come in, they have everything already built, and they just install. Yeah, usually in two to three days. Um, the second half of the museum, as Tom just said, was renovated, and that was eight major exhibits. They did close for a month because they had to take everything out and install all the interactives. So, yeah, they're really good. It's uh, They're out of Ogden. Yeah. I mean, do you close at all during the year? Only on Christmas and Thanksgiving. We're other days, we're open seven days a week from 9 to 6 p.m., which is, uh, you know, we really want people to come out there, and we have great, great traffic and great reviews. Okay. Anything else you guys want to add? No, thanks for the opportunity. And just invite everybody out to the Alfangan Ski Museum out at the Utah Olympic Park. Okay. Thanks, Leslie. Tom, Connie, thanks so much for your time. Well, joining me now on the phone with an update on the Utah State Legislature from KUER, I have political reporter Sean Higgins. Hi, Sean. Good morning, Leslie. So, as we mentioned last week, we are halfway through now officially the session. Um, given that the legislators' number one job is to approve a balanced budget, are are they close to getting that done? I mean, I guess that's really kind of the, the, the last thing that happens, huh? Yeah, it's it's probably the... I, I, I've talked to several lawmakers who say this is actually the biggest job and the most important job they have during the legislative session, laws they pass notwithstanding. Um, so this is a lengthy process. Uh, it's, it starts... Honestly, it starts about uh, about a year ago is when uh, these legislators start thinking about what appropriations they want, what bills they want to file that affect the budget, and then they uh, adjust accordingly. But yeah, this process is well underway right now. Uh, I think the last day for appropriations requests was last week, so no one can ask for any more money right now. I know um, there are certain amounts in the budget that are fixed costs that uh, can't really be changed too, too much, but some of these other programs, um, new legislation is asking for money. I think uh, I think it's around $8 billion in specific requests right now. This is out of, a, I think, a $28 billion proposed budget from Governor Spencer Cox. So a lot of money needs to be divided up into uh, all of these programs. Some of them won't be so lucky. Some will get funded. Uh, we'll just see how that turns out in the next few weeks. Yeah. Uh, moving to education, as we've talked, teacher raises secured as a result of that school school voucher bill getting approved. Um, and again, the rest of the budget, again, happening like, again, the last day. 
Yeah, so I think we talked last week about Spencer Cox signing the, the base budget approval. That's just the first step in the process. I think we talked around like a $4,100 uh, pupil average uh, uh, for that. I haven't heard too much news on any progress there. I think this is something that um, they're certainly having an eye on, given that the uh, HB 215 is adjusting the education budget pretty significantly with that teacher raise and also the, the Utah Fits All School Choice Scholarship Program as well. So we're definitely keeping an eye on that. All right. Uh, let's see. The House is moving forward with a bill regarding sensitive materials in school. This is House Bill 138. Tell us about this. Yeah, so this one is really interesting. It, uh, I believe, kind of came to life end of last year during the campaign trail. Um, there are obviously a lot of talk in uh, some more conservative circles about uh, inappropriate material finding their way into schools, whether it's library books, textbooks, or other materials. This kind of takes aim at it. This was amended quite significantly since it was first floated. I believe uh, the House passed the fifth substitute on this bill yesterday. Um, this, the, from my language, my understanding of the language, this pertains to pornographic or other quote-unquote indecent material appearing in textbooks or other school materials. Uh, what the definition of indecent material is was a little unclear to me, so I think that might be uh, a little bit of a gray area. There was quite a bit of discussion on both sides of the aisle about pressing pause on this and, and calling a circle to, to take it off of the voting calendar and further work on it, but ultimately it did go through. So this is an interesting one. It's now on to the House, or sorry, now on to the Senate, so we'll see what the Senate does with it. All right, another bill you're watching is House Bill 229. What's this? So this one was another interesting one. This narrowly went down in the House yesterday by a vote of 30 to 39, so very, very close uh, for Utah legislative standards. This was would have required local education agencies to provide paid parental and postpartum leave to uh, employees and establish a leave-sharing mechanism, leave mechanism. It was explained on the House floor that this would uh, put it more in line with other uh, public entities as far as uh, postpartum leave, things like that. So it was really interesting um, to see this one go down. I know uh, parental leave has been a little bit of a political hot button issue over the last few years. Um, and this one did not uh, succeed. Yeah, I'm surprised by that, just given Utah's kind of family values, you know, aura. Yeah, I, I, I think I have to admit I didn't hear much of the debate during the committees on this, but I would suspect that there were concerns, but budgetary concerns um, as far as uh, providing funding for this. But uh, I need to look into it a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about social media. There is a social media bill, Senate Bill 512, that the uh, Senate spent a lot of time yesterday debating. debating. What would this do? Yeah, so this one would require parental consent to use social media if a person is under 18. Um, we had Governor Spencer Cox and Attorney General Sean Reyes announce that they will be imminently filing lawsuits against certain social media companies. They wouldn't say which companies. Um, but basically, for them, 
for negligence, essentially, for not doing enough to uh, protect the mental health of young people. And we've seen other states take action on uh, companies like TikTok. I know there's a lot of uh, debate, or not d debate, but discussion around that they're owned by a Chinese company and just uh, intelligence concerns, privacy concerns there. But this one would specifically uh, ask for parental consent for the use of social media if a person is under 18. And this one, it sounds good on the surface. I think a lot of people are actually supportive of this, but how this is actually enforced is really murky. Like a, a kid could just go on to their phone, say they're 18 when they're really 14, and, and what mechanism would there be to actually verify that? Um, so there's a lot of debate there. It is uh, still in the Senate right now. There's several votes um, in the Senate before something actually passes out of the Senate. So uh, we're going to be watching this one. Yeah, that's uh, I, my exact question is like, how in the world would you enforce something like that? And I guess it's just up to the parents eventually, huh? Yeah. All right, uh, let's moving on to the Clean Air Caucus. They held a press conference last week where they discussed their bills and appropriation requests. Uh, let's talk about House Bill 220. This is ambitious to cut emissions along the Wasatch Front by 50% in seven years. And I guess I would say how? Yeah, so this was, I think we talked a little bit last week, Representative Andrew Stoddard told me that he really wanted to shoot his shot with this bill and, and just say in an ideal world, in a, my perfect world, this is what we would do. And, and that last week's Clean Air Caucus uh, press conference, he said that the, the scope of the bill has been narrowed some. So he's particularly wanting to take aim at uh, these bromine emissions. There was a, a study by the NOAA, uh, I think it was late January, that found that up to 25% of the emissions that are responsible for Salt Lake, the Salt Lake Valley's infamous inversion and smog actually come from one industrial source, this company called U.S. Magnesium in the Salt Lake Valley. And uh, I'm not a scientist, but apparently bromine is a major component to this brown cloud. Um, and so Representative Stoddard rewrote his, certain parts of his bill to specifically target these bromine emissions. And he is asking for a plan to reduce bromine emissions by 50% by December 31st, 2030. And that would be compared to a baseline of emissions determined by uh, the state um, in Tuella, Box Elder County, and I think Salt Lake County as well. Again, this is a bill that is still very new. Uh, it is still in the Rules Committee, which means it doesn't really have any public hearings yet. We'll see if this gets off the ground, but um, there seems to be a lot of traction on both sides to tackle the air quality issue. And I think narrowing the focus to focus on one specific problem that is, if you believe the uh, NOAA, is responsible for a quarter of the brown cloud in the Salt Lake Valley. So we'll see. And that's why we have lobbyists right there. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what about Governor uh, Cox's idea for free fares um, on transit for a year? Where's yeah, that? Yeah, so we were told uh, before the session started by the GOP leadership in the House that there wasn't much enthusiasm for this idea. Governor Cox is asking for $25 million to pilot a free fare for a year program to make public transit free statewide for, for one year. Um, we heard that there wasn't much enthusiasm for this. Governor Cox has a lot of passion for this. He, he firmly believes that the free fare February that is going on right now, if we expanded that to 12 months out of the year, 
ridership on buses and light rail and trains in the state of Utah would go way, way up. I know they took a huge hit during the pandemic. They're starting to come back, but I don't believe they're quite at pre-pandemic levels yet. So they're really just a push to get people there. And some movement last week, Senator Todd Weiler, he's a Republican senator um, from Woods Cross, which is just north of Salt Lake. He decided to sponsor this appropriation request. And his argument is that this is a smart move in the name of future development. So his district is this narrow part of land that is sandwiched in between the Wasatch Front and the Great Salt Lake. And he has I-215 and I-15 coming through his district. And he said at the press conference, my district has two interstates. It cannot fit a third. We need to get more people on public transit. So he's coming at it from a smart development angle as opposed to, hey, let's clean up the air, which might be a little bit more palatable for some of these more conservative members uh, who are doing these appropriations. But this is a really interesting one and something we're certainly going to be watching. Yeah, and I guess just why just a year? I mean, if you want people to ride transit, why not just, you know, like here in Park City, make it free? I think because it costs money and uh, people are very uh, reluctant to put uh, large amounts of money on a concept that is unproven. So I think Governor is coming at this as, uh, hey, let's try it out for a year. Let's look at the numbers. Let's gather some data. And this, if this proves fruitful, we can talk about a more permanent funding solution. Okay. Uh, affordable housing, House Bill 231, I saw a low-income housing property tax exemption. Um, what would this do to help provide affordable housing? Yeah, so this is kind of a, a, there's a couple of bills. So HB 231, like you mentioned, and then the Senate Joint Resolution 1 to amend the Utah Constitution. Both of these target property taxes. We talked a little bit earlier um, in the session about this being the year of the tax cut once again. Um, and property taxes is part of uh, what we heard that legislative leaders were going to be targeting. This one gets a little bit interesting because the vast majority of a person's property tax is actually handled at the county and municipal level. So the state is actually fairly limited in what it can and can't do to affect property taxes. But they're trying to get a little bit creative on this one. So the HB 231 um, would change uh, 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 set an income threshold for people who are looking to buy a house and then change their property taxes. And then I believe it, it alters some uh, definitions of what a nonprofit is. Um, I haven't read the full text of this one, but this one has passed the House unanimously, I believe, and it's now on to the Senate. And the SJR1, um, that's the proposal to amend the Constitution to prohibit the state from imposing a tax on the transfer, a tax on the transfer of what is called real property. That one is still in the Senate right now, um, and that would actually be going to the ballot um, later to for the, the people of Utah to vote on because a constitutional amendment needs approval from all the voters, not just legislators. All right, as you mentioned, you're the tax cut. Uh, what about the food uh, sales tax? Are, are we talking about getting rid of that once and for all? People are talking about getting rid of it. Whether it will be get rid of is, a, is another question. There are two bills right now that affect the food tax, HB 101 and HB 172. Both of these are currently stuck in the House Rules Committee. Um, so what we're hearing from legislative leaders right now, there is an appetite to get rid of the food tax if voters choose to end the constitutional earmark for education. Um, and so for people who are unfamiliar, income tax in the state of Utah goes to funding public and state-run public education and state-run higher education. That's the only funding, that's the only funding that those, or the, that tax only funds those two 
uh, uh, entities. And the reluctance to get rid of the food tax is because it is actually a quite stable source of income for the state. Surprise, surprise, people need to buy food. Um, so from a purely Excel spreadsheet, dollars and cents budgeting perspective, it does not make much financial sense to get rid of the food tax. But from a actual day-to-day uh, -day life impact. This could mean a, a lot for particularly lower income families whose proportion of their uh, weekly, monthly, yearly budget is a massive amount goes towards food. So helping them out there um, is something legislators are interested, but they would need to make up for that lost income somewhere. And uh, they seem to be targeting state income tax for that. But constitutionally, it is earmarked for education. Okay. Um, anything happening with regard to any alcohol or tourism bills? I know that it was like tourism day on the Hill last Friday. Yeah, so there's some interesting alcohol ones. The most interesting to me is this HB 247. This is an alcohol control amendment bill run by Representative Ken Ivory um, in here in the Salt Lake Valley. And the, it, what's interesting about this one, it would require uh, places that are allowed to sell alcohol to retain any records, including video surveillance for two years in case uh, any sort of criminal action comes and um, um, someone who purchased alcohol uh, at their establishment or liquor store. And this one is interesting because it could hold these entities liable for for certain things and, and punish them if they, do, one, if they don't retain these records and two, uh, theoretically, if it's proved that they overserved someone. Um, this one was actually circled in the house yesterday. So this one is on pause right now. Um, I would assume that the liquor lobby in Utah is a little reluctant to say we support this just because of the liability aspect to it, but we'll see how this one goes. Um, another bill that would allow the, the DABS to keep more money and use it for improvements in productivity and customer service, this would uh, adjust how much um, of their revenue they would actually be able to keep. That one was actually held in the House as well, so we'll see if that uh, grows any more legs as we as we go later on. I think we're, we're getting into a lot more of the super technical, really complicated language bills as we get to the second half. So there's a, a, a bit of reluctance to move as quick as we saw earlier in the session on some of this stuff where they really want to get it right. They don't want to put anything out there um, that would actually uh, cause a lot of issues for, for what they call stakeholders in all of this. Um, and then HSB 173 would uh, do a lot of amendments to the Alcohol Control Act. This has sponsors in both uh, chambers right now, but it is, is in the House Rules Committee. Um, so that tells me there is support to get a lot of those done, but it is very wordy, very technical, and they're still sorting through it in the Rules Committee before we hear any real debate in a committee hearing. Okay, we'll follow up with you with regard to any land use bills, because I know that's something that Summit County keeps its eyes on closely, but did want to bring up real quick uh, Senate Bill 181, a campaign sign amendments. This is uh, refreshing to those of us who see campaign signs uh, just up for a long time. And basically, people would be charged a fee for every illegally placed campaign sign. Yeah, this one is really, really interesting. So I remember back during uh, the campaign time last fall, the, the sponsor of this bill, Senator Mike McKell, 
got into a, let's say, a spirited debate with someone on Twitter about campaign signs. I believe he was arguing with a campaign staffer on another campaign about where you can and can't put campaign signs. Uh, lo and behold, Mikkel writes a bill to address this exact thing this session. So uh, basically, I believe, if I remember correctly, he was taking issue with campaigns hanging their signs on highway overpasses. Um, that is technically not allowed in Utah. Um, so this would amend some of those, clarify some of those rules, and actually impose a penalty on uh, the campaigns themselves if they have uh, campaigns there's just their signs everywhere. It would, I think it's, it's a pretty min minimal fee, $15 for, for every legally placed campaign sign. But if you're running a statewide campaign, that could add up pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. I think Summit County stands to, to make a lot there because there's so much state right of way that we see campaign signs up here. Um, and one other thing I wanted to, to address, the, the bill to change Utah's flag seems so controversial. What is it that nobody likes the flag that was chosen, even though it went through a very public process? This one is so fascinating, Leslie. So I think the, the criticism of the current state flag is that it is super boring. It's basically the state seal on a blue background. Um, and there was this push to, to rebrand Utah. I know, uh, we were talking yesterday as a newsroom about like other states in the West, like Colorado has a really distinctive state flag. Arizona has a really distinctive state flag. Um, and I think there's actually an economic argument for this as well. Think about how many trucker hats you see with the Colorado state flag on it. You don't see any trucker hats with the Utah state flag. So, um, there was this big effort. Um, they went out to the public to solicit designs for a new state flag. They had a whole committee come together for this um, and incorporates uh, parts of the, the native tribes in Utah, um, the, the unique geography of the state and really kind of simplifies things and, and makes it a little bit more modern. There is an interesting amount of pushback on changing the state flag. Who knew people were so passionate about this? But this passed in the Senate. It was a little bit of a divided vote, and it has really stalled out in the House. We haven't seen any movement on, in the House on this. There's uh, people passing around flyers calling the new flag, quote unquote, woke, uh, whatever that means. <laughs> and uh, this just seems to be one of those interesting issues that gets a lot of traction and no one is really sure why so the the flag as we know it stays until this bill gets approved yeah so the way i understand the language in the bill right now the current flag would actually still be the ceremonial flag um, of the state of utah so any kind of official government um, press conference, like when the when Governor Cox stands up and gives a speech, the current flag will still be behind him. But this new flag would be kind of the everyday flag. Uh, it would be in the uh, I don't know the legal term of it, but free use for people in the state within reason to to use it on things like we talked about merchandising, things like that. Um, yeah, so that it would essentially create two flags: one everyday flag, one ceremonial flag, which is the current state flag right now. All right, Sean. Sean Higgins, thanks so much for your for your update. We appreciate it. Thank you, Leslie. Well, joining me now on the phone from the Christian Center of Park City, I have Executive Director Rob Harder. Good morning, Rob. Hey, good morning, Leslie. Hey, uh, any luck finding a new location? I know that's something we've talked about. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're, we've got a good opportunity for a warehouse, actually, and so we're still figuring out the details. Okay. We're very close to solidifying that, and once it's done, I'm happy to jump back on your show and let you know about it. So it'll be more of a warehouse, uh, not so much a um, campus, 
but it'll be hugely helpful for us uh, for a lot of the things that we store on campus currently, you know, at our Park City campus and Heber campus. So um, very excited. More to come in a little bit. Okay, let's get an update on the food pantry. Um, as we have heard over the months, things just because of inflation and high food prices, you were seeing really a lot of demand for this. You're right. And it's interesting. So we just got our numbers back from January. And so, yeah, just to give for people always ask, you know, tell me how many people do you serve? And so we've got some numbers for you. Heber, in January, we served almost 1,600 individuals. And in Park City, it was just over 3,000 individuals. So combined, about 4,600 for the, the month of January, which is a little higher than normal, but it was the trend we were seeing, um, both the combination of J-1 visa international students plus just the need for people to come to get more food, as we've talked many times in your show about just the cost of food and the cost of everything, rent going up and everything going up. And so, therefore, the food pantry is a great way to really stretch their dollar by getting free food. Um, and then that way, the money that they have for other things like the rent and other things they can use for that. So definitely have seen that increase. We don't anticipate that dropping at least till April. Uh, that's our sense. So February has already been very busy as well. So we'll see, but we'll see what the numbers bear out. Okay. Well, we'll check back with that. Uh, you also have a par- partnership with Project Embrace. Sounds good for Valentine's Day. What's this? Yeah, really, exactly. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you've had them on the show. If not, we can we can get you, have them get you on the show or have you interview them, I should say. Uh, they've been great. So our Haley Hernandez, one of our staff members, connected us with Project Embrace. They're based out of Salt Lake, but they work with a wide variety of people, uh, whether it be unsheltered, undocumented, refugees, indigenous peoples, veterans. And their whole goal is really to provide used medical devices, walkers, wheelchairs, crutches, scooters. And so we do get that donated sometimes, but oftentimes we can't really do much with it until we've started this partnership with Project Embrace. And so we do want to let people know um, that is something we're taking. So if you ever have a wheelchair you don't need anymore or a walker or, uh, what you know, scooters, different things like that that you just don't need that are sitting and collecting dust in your garage, drop it off to us and then we will get it to Project Embrace because then they will distribute it throughout. It's actually throughout the state, but primarily uh, most people they serve are in Salt Lake. So it's a really cool um, outreach. Again, Project Embrace, you can Google it. Um, We met the the leaders and it's still pretty small group, but they're doing some great work. They have a huge heart and they really want to uh, make sure that everyone who needs a wheelchair, walker, scooter, et cetera, has access to that. Okay. A popular seminar that you've offered before, Mastering Menopause, is going to be brought back, I guess, due to popular demand? It was. It was interesting. Yeah, so we got a lot of good feedback from that, um, and a lot of people could not uh, join us live for that event. So what we're doing in about a month from now, so be mid-March, we're going to redo it. It will be a Zoom option this time, and it'll actually be recorded, too. Um, so that way, those hopefully people can join, you know, via Zoom live, and then um, we'll offer it where we will record it because um, the people that are involved with the teaching, there's some great resources that, you know, as you know, Leslie, now with Zoom and lots of seminars online, it maybe doesn't work for your schedule, but you do want the material, and so we're going to make it available afterwards um, where you can access it later because it's just really good information. Three different teachers are a part of this um, seminar, and so, yes, because we had such a good feedback um, and response, we're going to offer that again. So yeah. look for that. In a couple of weeks, we'll advertise more information, but it's going to be mid-March. Okay, and who will be doing the teaching on that? So mostly right now, it's going to be Nicole and Leah uh, from our own counseling center, and they also have a specialist that comes in uh, that will talk about menopause. That's also a psychologist counselor that specializes in this. Um, so it'll be three different uh, presenters, 
And it's about um, an hour and a half, I think, as the menopause seminar. And then afterwards, there was time for Q&A, of course. So at most, it's probably two hours. And again, well worth your time. Okay. Uh, Tuesday night dinners, how are they going? Getting a crowd? Yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah, so the crowd has not come from the, uh, the international students. We, it's been a smaller crowd this year, and uh, but it's been really fun. Like, uh, thank you. I want to give a shout-out to the community. We've had so many great community groups come through to serve uh, from Faith Communities, Rotary Group, and we've had a lot of um, great volunteers. The students have just not shown up like they have in the past, and so we're trying to figure out if it's – we're thinking two things that we've heard as feedback uh, – one, we're kind of restarting it, right? There was a almost three-year break because of COVID. And so I think just getting that back on people's radars, um, that this is a thing and you can come out, I think it's going to take a while to get the word back out. Um, and then also we've learned that um, just the way um, a lot of people, the international students are working at these resorts, um, oftentimes they're having to get two jobs now. I've heard that there's been a, a, such a big hiring of international students. Some of their time on their primary job has been cut back. And so they've been forced to get two jobs. And so a lot of them are working two jobs, and therefore they're working in the evenings. And so they're not available like they have been in the past. So those are the two biggest pieces of feedback that make sense to us of why, you know, we just haven't had the great attendance yet. But, but still, it's been a great event for those who have come. I think last week we had about 35, 40. So still, it was a great group. Again, the volunteers have been wonderful. They get a lot of food, which is wonderful. So they, they leave with their uh, plate full. And uh, so that's the best part of it. Yeah. Okay. So then this goes, what, through February? So we have three weeks left. Yes, so tonight and then the next two Tuesdays, and then we'll be done at the end of February, correct? Okay. Um, Also just wanted to, I know that you do a lot with uh, seasonal worker outreach. Were you able to help at all those 12 J1s that were paying each 1000 bucks for a one-bedroom apartment? Oh, that was just horrendous, right? Yeah. Um, They come, as far as I know, yes, they come to our food pantry. We've helped them in different ways. But in terms of housing, Again, no, there's just not that much available. Uh, that's the trip. That's the problem. I think that's why I think that article was so shocking for many people is uh, I think these international students kind of get desperate and they're like, well, it's at least a place and they can be with their buddies, um, but still is far from ideal. And, and it was just horrendous that they were charging that much for one bedroom. And so uh, I'm actually glad that it got more notice because I think those kinds of things have been happening for a while and we will hear about them through the international students. Um, but it's just hard sometimes to you know, get the word out that um, how inappropriate that is until you get an article like that. So anyway, yes, the students, um, that is a reality, sadly, that happens way too often. And so everything we're trying to do is provide them with, you know, good situations and find good housing options for them. But as you know, Leslie, just so limited. There's just so few options for them. And that's where I'm really hoping again next year that um, uh, more people will get the idea that they can open up their basement or whatever, or maybe they have a second home. Or, you know, of course, uh, Vail Park City, they've got more, there are going to be more spaces available for their seasonal housing there at the colony, or sorry, at the canyons uh, near the colony. So I think that'll help too. So I'm hoping next year will be a better season, but that is the reality. So um, it's a sad, sad reality. Okay. All right. Anything else, Rob, you wanted to mention? No, that's it. Thank oh. you so much for giving me a chance to talk. Okay. Talk to you next month. Thank you. Appreciate it, Leslie. Thank you. Rob Harder is the executive director of the Christian Center of Park City.